Section two of the Elements of Botany. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Elements of Botany by William Ruskinberger. Lesson two. Functions of Nutrition. Absorption and Ascent of Sap. Roots, their structure and forms. Stems, its divisions, varieties, etc. Structure of the stem and exogens. Medullary canal, pith, medullary sheath, wood. Medullary rays, bark, epidermis, cork, structure of the stem and endogens. Functions of nutrition. The phenomena of the life of nutrition in plants are referred to five distinct functions, namely, first, the absorption of nutritive matter, second, the transportation of the nutritive liquid or sap to the organs of respiration. Third, the process of respiration and elaboration or preparation of the nutritive juices in the interior of the respiratory organs. Fourth, the transportation of the sap thus elaborated to different parts of the plant and the deposition or assimilation of its elements in its various parts. Fifth, the secretion of peculiar juices affected by special organs. The roots of plants absorb the nutritive matter necessary for the maintenance of vegetable life, and the liquids, thus introduced into the body of the vegetable, constitute what is called the ascending sap. This sap rises through the stem by means of particular canals, and in this manner reaches the leaves and other green parts of plants. There it is modified by the effects of transpiration and of respiration. And after having been thus prepared, the sap descends, following a new root, and is distributed to those parts for the growth of which it is destined. We will study successively these phenomena and the organs which are the seat of them, both in vascular and cellular plants. Of the Absorption and Ascent of Sap The absorption of nutritive matters is principally affected by the extremity of the roots, and by passing through these organs and mounting along the stem, they reach the leaves, in the substance of which the alimentary juice is rendered fit for the nutrition of the plant. These two phenomena, the absorption and ascent of the sap, are very intimately united, and in order to understand them, we must in the first place study the structure of the two portions of the plant, which are the seed of them, namely the roots and stem. Of the root or descending axis, radix. We give the name of root to that inferior portion of plants, which serves to fix them in the soil, and which, by its growth, increases in length in an opposite direction to the stem. With the exception of some plants that live under water or float upon its surface, all vegetables are provided with roots, and these organs are almost always buried in the earth. Sometimes the roots float freely in the water, and there are some plants that insinuate them into cracks and walls or in crevices of the stem of some other plant, as the mosses, for example. There are certain plants the roots of which arise at a considerable distance above the surface of the soil, and have only their extremity buried in the earth, so that the greater part of their length remains exposed to the air. To such roots we give the name of aerial or adventitious roots. The maize or Indian corn and many other American plants have them. We see now that it is not a constant character of roots to be covered up in the earth, and on the other hand, we should be equally deceived if we were to regard as roots all parts of plants that are buried in the soil, for it sometimes happens that the stem, instead of rising up through the air, creeps horizontally underground. 
but the structure of the two parts is different and prevents them from being confounded with each other. The tissue of roots is whitish, and never becomes green by exposure to the action of light, which occurs to all other parts of plants. Those stems which creep along under the ground are called rootstalks, or subterranean, or rhizome, from the Greek ridsa, root. Stems. The stems of the orris root, ginger, and potato, upon which grow the tubers we eat, are instances of this kind. The root, considered as a whole in general, consists of three distinct parts. First, the body or middle part, which is sometimes globular, and at others, similar in form to a descending stem. Second, the radicals, the more or less delicate fibers which terminate the root at its lower part. And third, the neck or column, the point that separates it from the stem, and which is often marked by being smaller. The internal structure of roots varies. In general, it is divided into the cortical part, or bark of the root, and central or ligneous part. The bark of the root, which is often very thick, is entirely composed of cells. Its epidermis is always without stomata. The ligneous body of the root is not ordinarily composed of distinct fibers, and we do not find tracheae in it, as in the stalk or stem of vascular plants, nor has it pith in the center. The extremities of the radicals are unprovided with epidermis, and are composed only of rounded cellular tissue. These parts are called spongioles, little sponges, and as we shall presently see, play a very important part in absorption. The general forms of roots varies much, and gives rise to numerous distinctions, the chief of which are the following. Division of roots. Roots are primarily divided into simple and compound or multiple roots. Simple roots have a single base continuous with the stem. They are called tap roots when they descend perpendicularly and have almost the whole of their spongioles united at their extremity. These are fusiform, when they are shaped like carrots, in napiform, tuberous, etc., when they are swelled and rounded like turnips, fibrous, when they are very branching and ordinarily furnished with numerous spongioles. These are knotted, when they present swellings along the course of their fibers, and creeping or repent, when they run along near the surface of the soil. The second primary division of roots is the compound roots. They arise in great numbers from the neck of the plant. They are said to be branching or capillary, when each fiber, which is distinct at its origin, gives off branches in abundance, knotted when the fibers have swellings or knots in their course, and fusiform or fasciculate when they are formed by the union of a great many more or less elongated tubercles. We may add that roots are said to be fleshy when they are more succulent, juicy, and larger than the base of the stem and ligneous when their tissue resembles wood. They frequently present swellings or tubers, which are always masses of nutritive matter destined to supply the wants of the plant at a certain period. Finally, we give the name of adventitious roots to those which in certain instances arise from the stem, but are, in other respects, analogous to ordinary roots. Of the stem, collis. We give the name of stem, collis, stalk, to that part of plants which is intermediate between the roots and the leaves. The stem grows in an opposite direction to the root, and seeks the air and light. In general it rises vertically above the soil, and serves to support the leaves, flowers, and fruit. Generally this part of a vegetable is very apparent and easily recognized. Sometimes it is simple, at others branching. And when it is simple below and branching in its superior part, the first part is called the trunk, 
and to the second we give the name of branches. All vascular plants are provided with a stem, but sometimes it is so short and so enveloped in leaves, or so completely hidden in the ground, that it seems not to exist. Vegetables thus formed are called acaulous plants, from the Greek a without, and caulus, stem or stalk. But this absence of the stem is only an appearance. Thus in tulip and other bulbs there exists, amidst the leaves, in form of scales, of which the greater part of these bodies is composed, a tissue which separates these appendages from the roots, and which constitutes a true stem. Only instead of being elongated and cylindrical, as is ordinarily the case, it is generally globular and flattened above, in arrangement which has procured for it the name of cormus or plateau. Subterraneous or rhizome stems have the appearance of roots, but are distinguished from them by their structure and several other characters. Their tissue becomes green by the action of light, which is never the case in true roots, and under the influence of moisture, branches spring up covered with leaves, but radicals never grow from them. Sometimes these subterraneous stems bear, here and there, irregular tubercles. The stem of a plant assumes numerous and very different appearances in different plants. If above ground it is root-shaped or knotted, ascending, creeping, articulated, leafless, succulent, indeformed, or leafy. If it bears the flowers, proceeding immediately from the soil or near it, it is escape. The stems in most plants rise vertically in the air, but sometimes it wants strength to sustain itself and rests drooping on the surface of the ground, to which it often attaches itself by roots. Stems of this kind are named repent or creeping, or they sustain themselves upon some other more robust plant, as is seen in the climbing plants, etc. It is observed that the latter often wind themselves spirally round whatever supports them. They are then called twining or voluble, and it is worthy of note that the direction according to which different individuals of the same species wind themselves never varies. In some, such as the haricot or bean and bindweed, it is from right to left. In others, such as honeysuckle and hop, it is constantly from left to right. While young stems are always of a soft consistence and similar to grass, they often remain in this state and live but a year. They are then called herbaceous stems. In other instances, they acquire more or less hardness, their interior is transformed into wood, and they live out of the ground many years. In this case, they are called ligneous stems. When the stem, although it be persistent, remains watery and more or less soft, it takes the name of fleshy stem. We generally apply the name of shrub to those plants with a ligneous stem, which branch at their base and do not much exceed a man in height, such as the rose or lilac and we give the name of tree to those with a ligneous woody stem that branch only at the superior part and rise to a considerable height. The branches are only divisions of the trunk which diverge more or less from it, and are again subdivided in their turn. Upon their arrangement depends the general form of the plant. Sometimes they stand up, which gives the tree a pyramidal form. Sometimes they are spread out, and at others they are pendant or hanging. Certain stems present at intervals knots or enlargements, produced by an induration and a swelling of their tissue. When they are also hollow internally, they are designated under the name of culm or straw. The stems of wheat, barley, and oats are of this kind. We give the name of stipe to stems which resemble a round column, as large above as below, 
and crowned with a cluster of leaves or flowers like the stems of palms. The stem of all vascular plants is composed of fibers arranged in bundles, vesiculi, or layers, and variously surrounded by cellular tissue. But we observe very great differences in their structure, and these variations, which coincide with differences not less important in their mode of growth, have caused vascular plants to be divided into two groups, namely exogens and endogens. Exogens. Exogenous plants, from the Greek ex, from, and genome, I grow. A term applied to those plants, a transverse slice of whose stem exhibits a central cellular substance or pith, an external cellular and fibrous ring or bark, and an intermediate woody mass, and certain fine lines radiating from the pith to the bark, through the wood, and called medullary rays. They are called exogens, because they add to their wood, by successive external additions, and are the same as what are otherwise called dicotyledons. They constitute one of the primary classes in which the vegetable world is divided, characterized by their leaves being reticulated, their stems having a distinct deposition of bark, wood and pith, their embryo with two cotyledons, and their flowers usually formed on a quinary type. Endogens, endogenous plants, from the Greek endon, within, and genomai, I grow. One of the primary classes of plants, so called because their stems grow by successive additions to the inside, they are usually known by the veins of their leaves running parallel with each other, without branching or dividing. Grasses, lilies, the asparagus, and similar plants belong to this class, which in warm countries contains trees of large size, such as palms and screw pines. The class of exogens comprises all the trees and shrubs of our forests, and is composed of vascular plants, the stem of which has a medullary canal in the center and grows by superposed layers. The class of endogens comprises those plants in which the stem has neither a central canal nor concentric layers. The palms belong to this division. Structure of the stems of exogenous plants. In the stems of these plants we distinguish two principal parts, the bark and the central or ligneous part, which might be called the body of the stem. Each one of these portions is in turn composed of several different parts. The central portion of the stem is formed by a central pith, by ligneous layers, and by medullary rays. The bark or cortical portion is composed of the epidermis of a cellular envelope and of a fibrous part called liber or cortical layers. Liber, Latin, bark, is the interior lining of the bark of exogenous plants. If we cut through an elder or any other exogenous tree, transversely, we observe in the center a canal which is ordinarily angular or very nearly cylindrical, and which in the young branches, if not in the whole plant, is filled with a round cellular tissue. This cavity is called the medullary canal, and the cellular tissue found in it is named the pith of the plant. The central pith is of a soft consistence and of a very homogeneous structure homogeneous, from the Greek umu, together, in genus kind, of the same kind. Bodies whose constituent elements are of one and the same kind are said to be homogeneous. While young it is always humid and of a light greenish tint, but with the progress of age, the cells of which it is composed become empty, dry, and assume a remarkable whiteness. Sometimes it is torn by the effect of the elongation of the stem, and separates in laminae or bundles, as may be easily seen in branches of jasmine, that have attained one year old. 
in herbaceous plants and in ligneous plants of very rapid growth, such as the elder, the space occupied by the pith is very considerable. But in trees, the wood of which is very hard, such as oak, the medullary canal or sheath is generally very small. The pyriades of the canal, containing the central pith, called medullary sheath, are formed of longitudinal fibers, ordinarily arranged in a circle, and of a layer composed of tracheae, false tracheae, and porous vessels. It is the only part of the stem in which true tracheae have been observed. Between the medullary canal and the bark is the ligneous body or wood, which is composed of concentric layers, the number of which is more or less considerable according to the age of the plant. Each of these layers is composed of longitudinal fibers, united to the subjacent layer by cellular tissue. These fibers are formed nearly in the same manner as those of the medullary sheath, except that no tracheae are found in them. They are composed only of clusters, or elongated cells, or dotted or rayed vessels. The ligneous body constitutes what is generally termed wood. Its central portion is harder than its external part, and is ordinarily of a different color. It is this part which is commonly called the heart of the wood, and which botanists designate under the name of true wood, heartwood, or duramen, while they give the name of alburnum or sapwood to the external ligneous layers, the solidity of which is less and the color whiter. In other respects, the structure of these parts is the same, only the ligneous fibers of the true or perfect wood are filled with solid matters deposited in their interior, while the proportion of liquids is more considerable in the sapwood or alburnum. In trees of slow growth, the line of demarcation is very distinct between the heart and sapwood, and in the colored woods, such as ebony, mahogany, etc., it is the heart only that possesses their peculiar color, the sapwood being usually white. In trees of very rapid growth, such as the poplar, willow, etc., there is, on the contrary, but little difference between these two ligneous layers. As we shall see in the sequel, the alburnum is gradually converted into perfect wood, and it is by the formation of new ligneous layers between those already formed in the bark that the stem increases in thickness. The medullary rays are the divergent lines which run from the center of the stem towards its circumference. They are composed of vertical laminae of compressed cellular tissue and are very analogous to the pith from which they seem to arise. These rays come in part from the external ligneous layers and terminate in the bark, thus establishing a communication between the superficial and central parts of the stem. The bark is composed first of a layer of cellular tissue, which constitutes the epidermis, and of a deeper layer formed of clusters grouped together so as to form fibers, but without being united with tracheae. In the progress of age, new alternating zones of cellular tissue and fibers are formed beneath the preceding, and there results from it a series of superposed layers which resemble those of the wood, but differ from them essentially in their mode of growth. We have observed that the latter are formed successively, one on top of the other. In the bark, on the contrary, growth takes place from without inwards. We give the name of liber to the inner layers of the bark because they are easily detached in thin plates or laminae, because the ancients made use of it, as we do paper, to write upon. Note, some of our young readers may remember the Latin word liber and its several versions given as follows. Liber book, liber tree, liber child, and liber free. 
The external layer of cellular tissue constitutes the epidermis, and is what botanists term the herbaceous envelope of the bark. In the course of the growth of the subjacent parts, it soon becomes strongly compressed, and at a certain epoch we see it crack and tear in flexible laminae, or detach itself in scales or patches. The neighboring cortical layers undergo the same alterations, and when the part of the bark thus modified has been raised up, the lamina of cellular tissue thus exposed becomes for a brief period a kind of epidermis, until it is itself in turn detached. For this reason the thickness of the bark is never very considerable, and its surface is continually renewed. In some plants the herbaceous layer becomes very much developed, and the portion of bark that is thus separated is of sufficient consistence and thickness to be very useful to us in the arts. Cork, for example, is the only superficial part of the bark of a particular species of oak, Quercus rober, which detaches itself from the liber every eight or nine years, and it may be removed more frequently without any danger of destroying the tree. Bark often contains in its interior cavities which are reservoirs of proper juices, and in particular those called the vessels of the latex. Latex is a peculiar fluid, usually turbid, and colored red, white, or yellow, often, however, colorless. Structure of the stem of endogenous plants. The stem of these plants, that of a palm, for example, is formed of a considerable mass of cellular tissue, analogous to pith, through which penetrate bundles of fibers in various ways, but never forming concentric layers, as in the exogenous plants. Each of these fibers is composed of elongated cellules, of large dotted vessels, of tracheae, of proper vessels, and of polyhedral cells. They are closer together near the center of the stem than towards its circumference, and their superior extremity is abruptly curved outwards to be continued into leaves. It is remarked also that in general there is no distinct bark, and that the external pellicle never grows in layers as is the case in exogens. Cellular plants never present parts that are really analogous to the organs we have just spoken of, and to which we shall again recur. End of Lesson 2